Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Top of the morning to you, Steve. <laughs> Top of the morning to you. <laughs> well, St. Patrick's Day was a couple weeks ago. So. Yeah, <laughs> a couple weeks late on that one. <laughs> what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot to share with you everything that we've learned. And Steve, what is our topic today? So today, we're bringing you the second episode in our Spring Ephemeral series. It's not a skunk. Wrong kingdom. It's not a cabbage. Wrong family. <laughs> it's skunk cabbage. <laughs> Simplocarpus fetidus. I say fetitus. Fetitus? Well, because fetid is, the, is yes. where it comes from. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Whichever. Yeah. But is it okay if I start today with the story? Yeah. All right, but before I, before I tell my story, because we always seem to forget to do this, we should tell people where we are. Oh, sure. And this is where we recorded our first maple sugaring episode, mm -hmm. which was a classic. If you haven't listened to that, go and listen to that one. But we are at the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center, and this is a about a 400-acre nature preserve located about a half an hour, 45 minutes east of Buffalo. And we are in the wilds of Wyoming County, but it is mostly second-growth forest. The last time we were here, I think we heard a bobcat. <laughs> we did hear a bobcat noise. And uh, to find out what we're talking about, you need to listen to the Screech Owl episode. Probably my favorite episode. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> All right, and, and for long-time listeners, you may know this is where I did get my start. My first big boy job was here as a, a staff naturalist. I got to live on this site. There's cattle ponds here. There's a large beaver pond. And if you ever do find yourself in the western New York area, I would strongly recommend to come and check out Beaver Meadow. They have programs, but even as a place just to come and hike, it's a beautiful spot. But this is a good spot to find our target species. There's a lot of low, wet spots here. Mm -hmm. But as promised, my story about skunk cabbage it was actually before I even started working here. I was just out of college, started to work for a, a local environmental ed group, and one of the things that they were doing at the time was helping schools plan out and install nature trails. So one of my first tasks was to head out to this spot. The, uh, a local primary school had a nice little wetland, nice little patch of woods, and we were putting in a boardwalk through the wetland. And we were working with some high schoolers who as part of their, their shop program had constructed all of the pieces for the boardwalk. They had kind of put them together in school, brought them out in sections, and we were gonna put them all together. So we were actually doing this in the very early spring. And I still remember we were out there, things were still pretty frozen. We were actually having to use a pickaxe to chip down into the ice and mud to lay some of the supports for the boardwalk. And the, the high school kids, you can imagine how they enjoy doing that. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were very passionate in their uh, apathy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, as... They'd the rather be doing drugs and making out under the bleachers. <laughs> oh, Steve, come on. <laughs> the good old days. That's that what you did in high school? school? Yeah. As the, the weeks went by, because we were out there for quite a bit. We were working out there two, three days a week. And as the weather warmed up, skunk cabbage did start to emerge. And the, the fellow I was working with... We were kind of heading up the team, and we would stop and try to teach some of the, the kids about what we were seeing, the birds we were hearing, the plants that were coming up. And as the season wore on, the skunk cabbage leaves started to unfurl. And as you know, uh -huh. they're huge. They're big, bright oh. green, uh, where the cabbage-y part of the name comes from. Mm -hmm. 
So they can be like a foot long. And, I've, I've even heard close to two feet. And then one source I had said up to four feet in really extreme what? cases. Yeah. And I'm like four feet. That doesn't sound right. But I did see um, one that was up to 60 centimeters, which is coming close to two feet. Yeah. yeah so the ranges that I saw, the high end was around 15 inches. Mm-hmm. But four feet, uh, that's hard to believe. But usually they're around foot long, you know, uh, half a foot to a foot wide. They're, they're big leaves. Mm-hmm. And we were telling the kids about how skunk cabbage, it's a very interesting looking plant, but it's not something you want to gather as a wild edible. <laughs> Fresh. And we'll get into why, but one of the kids, you know, they kept pretending that they were going to eat it, and we'd say, guys, you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. And this one kid who stood out as the smart guy in the group, mm-hmm. He rolled up one of that leaves, and as we were telling him not to do it, shoved the whole thing into his mouth and started chewing it up. And within about 20 seconds, you could just watch the color drain out of his face. <laughs> he starts spitting it out, screaming, crying for water. And we just said, we told you. So The raphides? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we'll get into what that's all about. But uh, that kid... Never Died. forgot skunk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Never forgot skunk cabbage, and I'm sure the rest of the group did not either. So yeah, yeah. It's not a great family to eat. <laughs> oh, well, oh, there is one food. Do, do you know what that food is? In the, the Aaron family? Yeah. No, I'm blanking on what it. I, I left that in my notes because I was thinking. I'm like, I don't really care about eating it. And then this <laughs> came up, and I'm like, I Damn. wish I would have written it down now. Yeah. All right. So why don't we uh, talk a little bit more about identification though because i'm hoping everyone out there has gotten to see skunk cabbage or is familiar with it but i'm betting there's some people that aren't yeah so this may be the second spring ephemeral episode but skunk cabbage is typically one of the first plants that comes up yeah you can even see the flowering parts some reports say in the fall it is even emerged oh really yeah, yeah. and uh yeah actually the flower is usually developing under the snow and then usually you'll see uh the snow melted around it at a certain point, but we'll get into the thermogenesis in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, so as per usual, I think the best place to start is talking about what skunk cabbage looks like. Yeah. But first, I'm going to set the stage. So the scene opens on the northeastern and midwestern United States. Because <laughs> that's where you find it. From Virginia in the southeast all the way to Wisconsin in the northwest, as well as the southeastern Canadian provinces. So within this geographic region, our protagonist spends its time in wet meadows, swampy woods, stream banks, pond edges, shores, and other moist, low ground habitats. Did you say protagonist? Yep. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So it may be late winter or early spring, but skunk cabbage is getting hot. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, even when it's covered in snow, it's warm enough to carry out active metabolism. And eventually the flower develops, and the stove has melted around the plant, exposing it to the elements. Uh, but at this point, the story gets pretty X-rated, <laughs> and I don't feel comfortable reading it publicly. And, so, I, and I don't want to get too far without explaining a few things about skunk cabbage first. But, right. So yeah. we should also mention there is a western skunk cabbage, but it doesn't really look a whole lot like Simplicarcus fetidus. Is it still Simplicarpus? I don't even know. I, sh- I don't think so because... That's a very good question. I should have so noted that. This genus only has five species, and the only four that I saw were like East Asian species. Right. Yeah. And the crazy part is you can find this species in Asia. Oh, okay. So maybe it is a Simplicarpus. Yeah. yeah. So you can find this particular species there too. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what people are going to be seeing at this time of year. And right now, folks, we're here in late March. 
So we're walking right now along a kettle pond. There's still uh, a good amount of snow in patches throughout the woods, but we're along a wet area because we know this is probably a good spot to find skunk cabbage. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking for the leaves right now. It's too early. Yeah, this plant, like colt's foot, flowers first right. and then produces its leaves later. Yeah, but usually, unlike colt's foot, the leaves are emerging while the flower is still present. Sure. Yeah, because usually with colt's foot, or at least often with colt's foot, by the time the leaves are really emerging, the flowers are gone. Mm -hmm. That makes sense because colt's foot is wind dispersed, whereas... And skunk cabbage. Is not. Yeah. Not. <laughs> All right, so if you know this plant, then you know at this time of year, you're going to be looking for these strange-looking hoods in the ground. And these are a specialized leaf called a spathe. Mm -hmm. And the color's variable, but it's usually reddish-purple. Modeled a little bit reddish-purple. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, I did a search for a skunk cabbage spathe, and I was surprised at the variety I saw. But usually it seems to be reddish-purple, but it also can be yellowish-green to green, streaked or striped with reddish-purple. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... The, it can be reddish-purple, but with light streaks or speckles. Okay. So red, purple, yellow, green, uh, it kind of runs the gamut in there with speckles or not speckles. Because I've seen some that are just solid reddish-purple as well. Yeah, and, and kind of to help visualize this, I've often heard it described as thick, leathery, spike-like, and also shell-like. And I kind of like the shell-like. Yeah. It almost like overlaps itself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, almost a, like a tent doors or like a bathrobe. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like a pointed hood at, pointed at the top. Yeah, they're partly buried in the ground and on a very short peduncle, which flowering stem, so that's buried in the ground. You're not really going to see that. Right. And some are actually pretty deeply curved. Like the plant itself isn't very like erect. Right. But there are some that are relatively erect. Yeah, and so, yeah. we should say, like, how, how big are these spathes, these hoods going to be? I think the range is anywhere from like two and a half to five inches. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, like, I don't think I've ever seen one taller than about five inches or six inches. Yeah. So, so I read a pretty cool account of a mutation where two spathes were produced. It was like a spathe inside of a spathe. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like Mutant. the, uh, yeah, the double bathrobe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I actually read the paper that it was described in, and uh, it was in South Springfield, Pennsylvania in 1918. The plant had four double spathes. Holy cow. And so this is what I'm kind of curious about. Maybe you have the answer to this. I don't mind admitting my ignorance on this. But I was under the impression, because it's not a clonal species, it only reproduces through seed, that skunk cabbage only has a single inflorescence. So I'm wondering... Hang on. There... i got to interrupt you. Okay. I have written down that it's a low colonial herb. Are you sure it's not colonies because the parents, like, drop seeds right near it? Uh, maybe. That's something we're going to have to look up. We'll have to post that in the episode notes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so th that was my question. I felt like it was potentially ambiguous because I was thinking if it's on a single inflorescence, is there eight spathes, but they're very clearly grouped in pairs? Or is it a, one plant? producing four inflorescences and each one of those has a double space <laughs> so, and and maybe the answer is super obvious if you know that it can produce multiple inflorescences but i i didn't know if it could or not as far as i know from what i read I, it cannot yeah so but we'll have to look into it yeah no? yeah if anyone knows that answer hit us up <laughs> you've given us some homework steve mm -hmm. all right so the last thing i want to say about the spathe is 
the texture of the spathe. I know you felt them before. I've taken ones apart for groups before. I read it described as almost like a uh, a very light styrofoam. Oh. And it definitely is a, a unique texture. It's when you think of a leaf, the texture of the spathe is not what you would normally think of. So it's it's much denser and thicker than a leaf because it is really a specialized leaf. Yeah, it's a bract, yeah, right. a modified and, leaf. Yeah. And what I found in my research is the texture of the leaf, the thickness of the leaf, the air pockets within there help with retaining heat, mm -hmm. which we will be getting into. Steve used that term thermogenesis, and uh, if you don't know what that means, you might be able to figure out a little, but we're going to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I think it's time, now that we've talked a lot about the spathe, let's talk about what's inside the spathe. And why don't we walk when we do that? Yeah, that okay. sounds like a good idea. All right, so if you find a freaky-looking skunk cabbage spathe out there, take a moment to bend down, peek inside the opening, and you will see a yellowish to reddish knob spiked with flowers. And that is the spadix. The way that I want to describe it is it kind of looks like a small, smooth pineapple. <laughs> now, do you know where I'm coming from at all? It's just not as spiky as a pineapple? Maybe the head of it. Yeah, 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 right, because each flower kind of is grouped into its own section. Sure. So it's kind of like sectioned off, kind of like how a pineapple sectioned off, and it's actually for the same reason, because sure. each of those sections is its own flower. Like a pineapple on a pedestal. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a very tiny pedestal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the flowers on the, the surface, they are bisexual. Mm-hmm. They're they, perfect. Yes. Yeah. So male and female parts. And they're pollinated by some of the earliest flying insects of the year. And these tiny flowers, they have no petals at all, right? Well, they do have something called tepals. Okay, what is that? So, it's something that's indistinguishable between a sepal oh, and a petal. Wait, I'm going to stop you because look. We found some. We found some. <laughs> We're walking by the water. So, they're not in great shape. No, they look like they've been chewed. I mean, I do see a lot of deer feces around That's i mean true. on the path anyway so yeah. i wonder if the deer are, are eating them all right so we got a, a pretty good sized one here so we have two spates clustered together one of the spates has been chewed a little bit so we can actually see the spadix pretty well mm -hmm. so i'm going to hold the mic down near there and i'm going to pull the the spathe apart so okay. people can hear what it sounds like You can hear that kind of squeaky sound. As, as I said, it's almost like a texture of styrofoam. Similar, not exactly, but smooth on the outside, but then the inside is... Looks like there's a lot of pollen in there. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can see the part oh, that's sticking out right now. Smell that. I actually don't mind it at all. <laughs> yeah. So there's the, the skunk part it's of the name. It's almost garlicky. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. So, And you'll find, folks, lots of different descriptions about what exactly it smells like when you uh, break a leaf, uh, break a stem... It's definitely a strong odor. So yeah. right now, it looks like a club for sure. It's like really globose. Yep. What's that? Is it a flail? What's the one where it's like a ball on a stick? That a people... morning star. Is that what it's called? Well, the morning star's on the, the ball on the chain. I'm Wait. thinking of the ball on the stick. So you're thinking of a mace, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so it almost looks a bit more like a mace. But if you look, each one of the flowers, what's sticking out of it right now, yeah. are four little stamen. And this means... That the female parts have already, done, have their already job. done their job. So these flowers, they're what are called protogynous. Some people say protogynous. Because proto and then 
gynus. Gynus is the lady part. That's, yeah. <laughs> so the female parts mature first. And they begin to bloom at the spadix top, and they progress downward, and then they're followed by the male parts. And why would a plant do that, Steve? To uh, avoid self-pollination? That's right. So yeah. if the female parts are available first, insects hopefully coming in are bringing male pollen. They're bringing pollen from a different plant. <laughs> male pollen. You know, male and female pollen. You know. <laughs> All right. But uh, I did make a note here that um, protogenous, that is opposed to protandrous. Because the flower has both male and female parts, it just doesn't want it producing at the same time. So it's either going to do the male first and then the female, or it'll do the female first and then the male. So skunk right. cabbage is the female first, but other plants do have it, so the stamen are produced first. And I did look up one that yeah. I think people would know. Hmm. So there's a, a lobelia, and I didn't look up if all lobelias are like this, but right. uh, cardinal flower, lobelia oh, cardinalis. Okay. So that is an example of a protandrous flower where the male parts are mature first. So we're down right near the water's edge, folks. That's where skunk cabbage often likes to be. And something just moved. You don't think it was a tadpole or a salamander? I don't know. I thought something fell from the trees above okay. us. Yeah. Maybe it did. I'm hoping that we get to see a salamander today. It's a little bit early. That would be great. It's but a little... Th this is where we come to see the great yeah. salamander migration. And so. we should do an episode on salamander migration. Yeah. Definitely. So it is a little early. Usually into April is, is when it happens around here. But... Back to the flower we're holding. And I do have to say, Steve, mm -hmm. now that I'm holding it in my hand, I'm holding the spadex in my hand, you are right. It is a lot like a pineapple. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, so what we were just saying is that right now it's a club with each section of the club, because like I was saying before, it's kind of sectioned off like a pineapple. Each section has four stamens sticking out of it, and the pistils have already... They're gone. They're gone. Yeah. Now, you mentioned before when I said it didn't have any petals, you said it has tepals. Did you finish explaining what that is? No. So it's definitely hard to see, but in each one of those sections, there are four tepals. So they look, they're kind of like petals. They're like sepals, but they're indistinguishable from each other. But the thing is, they're flush with the club shape. So they don't stick out beyond the club like, like the stamen are now. Yeah. They're flush with the surface of the club. Okay. So they're so hard to see, but when you're under a microscope, you can see that each section kind of has like these four little sectioned parts rimming it. And those are the tepals. All right, so for people that aren't sure, what is a sepal, just to remind us? So in many flowers, you'll recognize them as being a green petal-like structure. structure underneath the petals. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes they're hidden behind the petals. Sometimes they're sticking out a little bit beyond the petals. Often but, you look at it and you think it's a petal, but... Yeah. yeah. And they don't have to be green. Like orchids only have three petals, but the sepals also look a lot like petals, so they kind of look like they have six parts. So yeah. it can be confusing, um, yeah. but they're petal-like, often green, but they can be Other they can be colorful. Yeah. Okay. And how does that differ then from a tepal? Teeples, to the best of my understanding, are just when it's impossible to tell if it's a petal or a sepal. Oh, okay. So they're indistinguishable. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Okay. Did you know that the generic part of the name, Simplicarpus, has to do with the fruit? Yeah. It, it actually translates to compound fruit. Yep. I found that it translates to connected fruit. Yeah. So if we were to come back here and these flowers were pollinated, it would turn black with age and become a compound fruit. It would have these heavy marble-sized seeds, and it looks like an egg-shaped ear of corn. Have you ever seen it in the wild? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have, 
Which I've is, seen them. They get spongy and they kind of disintegrate eventually. Okay, and they start out yellow, but they ripen to black. But the pictures that I saw, it really does look like a black ear of corn. And they usually germinate. Uh, when the seeds do fall off, they usually do germinate within a few feet of the parent plant. Yeah, unless they're carried off by an animal. So I have right. heard accounts that they may be dispersed by birds or mammals. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but very often, you're right, yeah, they will just grow right under their parent plant. I also want to mention that when they do finally germinate, that usually happens in the following spring, but new plants won't bloom in their first year, Right. and they might not produce flowers until their fourth year. Yeah, it takes a while for them to build up enough stored energy to flower, to reproduce. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I don't know about you, but I need to get out my knees, Era. Yeah. <laughs> Not as young Ooh. as they used to be. And what a seamless transition, because uh, the audience may not know, but I just dropped the microphone into the water. <laughs> and luckily, we have two microphones, so... Uh... We had to run back to the car to get the other one. <laughs> uh, all right. Woo. All right, so I'm just going to stop us for a minute, because as we walk, I want you to listen. Brown creeper. There's a brown creeper calling off through the woods. That... Listen. Did you hear that? Hopefully the mic picked it up. That's the first brown creeper I've heard this year. Nice. Yeah. All right. So we were just talking about the origin of uh, the genus, of mm-hmm. the name for the genus. So I figured this would be a good spot to talk a little bit about the family, the Ariaceae family. Yeah. So some people just call them the Arums. So this is related to Jack in the Pulpit, if you folks are familiar with that. And the Arums, they're native to Europe, Northern Africa, Western, and Central Asia. And did you know the highest species diversity was in the Mediterranean region? Yes, yeah. No, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And this same species, as I mentioned before, Simplicarcus fetidus, does occur in Japan and other locales in Eastern Asia. And I came across the notion that paleobotanists believe that this plant migrated to North America via the Pleistocene land bridge that, you know, would show up several times in between Siberia and Alaska. And then you may know this plant by its other names. It's also known as swamp cabbage, meadow cabbage, fetid hellebore, and skunkweed. And I don't know if you mentioned this, Steve, that it's an obligate wetland plant. So its probability of appearing in a wetland is 99% according to one source I came across. So I actually want to mention that I skimmed a 2013 study out of plant ecology that looked at classification of wetland quality in Ohio, and they also looked at rethinking cost-effective methods for classifying a wetland as a high-quality or low-quality wetland. I may have come across this. Was was this the one where it said you should just look for skunk cabbage? Yeah, Uh, kind of. I mean, (laughs) they implied it, but they did say, well, it's not foolproof. Right. You may want to look into it more. So they used a couple models, and in one of their models, they found that the presence of skunk cabbage, cinnamon fern, and swamp rose were the best predictors for high scores in the Ohio Vegetation Index of Biotic Integrity, or OVIBI. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good acronym. (laughs) So uh, they also found that the best predictor for low biotic integrity was the absence of of these same three species uh-huh. rather than the presence of some other species. Because you could imagine, you'd be like, oh, maybe if an invasive moves into a wetland and just takes it over, that would be a really good indicator of a poor functioning wetland. But no, it's just the absence of these species. Okay, uh, That's the best predictor. So another model that they used found that skunk cabbage and marsh fern were the best predictors of high-quality wetlands. 
with misclassifications only occurring 13% of the time. Wow. So this is you know 87% effective. Yeah. Um, and again, the best predictor of low-quality wetlands was the absence of these two plants rather than the presence of any other species. They uh, suggested that statistically derived species checklists, like what they use in their study, could be used by field biologists to quickly and efficiently identify high-quality and low-quality wetlands. Um, and then if there's another part of that research, you know, if they're targeting specific wetlands, whether they're targeting low-quality or high-quality, that would be a really easy way to at least get a... A baseline? A baseline, yeah. yeah. Um, and as someone who has spent entire days doing botanical <laughs> surveys in wetlands, I could see it being useful for, for specific things, like I said. Like, I don't think the work that I was doing could have been replaced by this work, but you could see how it could save you a lot of time it and would money. Help. Yeah, yeah. Just by doing a presence absence. Did you have a look on USDA plants for the species account of skunk cabbage? I glanced over it, yeah. All right, because the only reason I bring it up, and you may want to cut this out because this is a bit of local piece of information, but I was trying to think of where we could go to record, and I'm going back in my head of where all the places I've seen skunk cabbage are, and I couldn't think of any places really close to our homes. So Steve and I both live in the suburbs of Buffalo, and every place I was thinking of was farther away. Like, oh, yeah. There was not going to be anywhere super close to our houses, so I happened to go on USD plants. I looked on their range map. There are no accounts of skunk cabbage on their website for Erie County. That's really interesting because right in Erie County, there's a place called Great Bear Swamp Preserve. Yeah. And uh, you just look out, and it's skunk cabbage everywhere you can see. All right, so yeah. whatever method they're using for their species accounts, obviously they missed that. It may be an overhead survey. Okay. So it may be from, like, photos, yeah. which is... A way to do it. Okay. If we went to Great Bear, that would have been a drive for both of us. Right. It wouldn't have been convenient for anyone. <laughs> All right. So is there anything else you wanted to give about, you know, the general species background? Because I wanted to talk about the rhizomes next. Yeah. So before we move on to that, uh, just because you had talked about it, you had, you had brought up the family yeah. a little bit. And there was a couple things that were surprising. I don't think I necessarily had misconceptions about skunk cabbage, but I just didn't really think about its evolutionary history. I had no idea it was a monocot. I didn't know that either. Yeah, so it's, uh, and forgive me if I say it wrong, but Liliocida, Liliocida, or Liliopsida. Okay. I always, I, I blow it with classes <laughs> all the time. Sounds good to me. So I knew grasses and orchids and lilies were monocots, but I didn't know skunk cabbage was. And, and you'll actually see on its leaves, it'll have some parallel venation, and that's one of the characteristics of monocots. So let people know what monocots, dicots, what's the difference? Right, so monocots, it's just an older lineage of plant. Um, they generally have a different root structure. When they first start growing out of the ground, uh, a dicot, uh, let's say let's say like a maple tree, a, a dicot, um, you'll see it'll produce two cotyledons. Two seed leaves. Two seed leaves. So they're not true leaves. Right. But they kind of look like leaves. You're like, what is this? And you would never guess that it's like a maple tree seedling that's growing but eventually those leaves will be replaced with true leaves right and yeah monocots just have one seed leaf yeah mono versus die right yeah i don't really want to talk about the family all that much because <laughs> skunk cabbage is already a big enough topic on its own but i just want to cover a few things and then move on yeah um so the Araceae, the family that skunk cabbage is part of has 121 genera and 3770 species uh, so that's not a small family. And we brought it up before, but it is monophyletic, both based on morphology and DNA sequencing. What does that mean? So that just means that every plant within the Araceae 
as well as its ancestor that they all came from, were all Arams. Okay. I hope that wasn't a bad way of saying that. <laughs> so, um, so I wanted to mention that typically members of this family have some version of the spathe and spadix, as we described earlier. And the flowers are seldom perfect, and the ovaries are usually superior. So that sets skunk cabbage apart from the rest of the trend in the family. Because skunk cabbage has inferior ovaries, so they develop inside the spadix. And their flowers are perfect. So that's just something that, you know, when we say that there's trends in a family, there's always going to be members. And we just happen to be talking about one of the members today that that trend does not fit with. I also want to say that if you think you're not very familiar with this family, (laughs) you you might want to think again. Because so there are some notable members of this family Uh, in our neighborhood. We have Green Dragon and Jack in the Pulpit. They're in the genus Erisema. Uh, We also have Water Arum. We have Arrow Arum. And then those tiny floating aquatics that are growing in wetlands, um, such as uh, Spiridella, uh, Lemna, Wolfia, Wolfiella. So these are all genera? Yeah. So I should have said you might know these as like uh, duck meat, duck weeds, water meal, bog mats. Like they, right. they, they have maybe more known uh, common names, but they're pretty much everywhere. And I didn't, I, I think it took me a while to learn that a lot of these tiny floating aquatics were in this family. And speaking of floating aquatics, I think it would be an awesome idea if we actually did a bonus or regular episode on them someday. You know, Wolfia and Lemna, like those are really cool plants and I'd love to cover them, especially since it's something that so many people see every single day. Right. And especially if you're anywhere near a wetland and it would be nice to know something about it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So... uh, so if you guys like to go to botanical gardens, you might recognize other members of the family, like philodendrons, uh, the titan arum, that's a right. huge one, um, elephants here. And uh, because they have low light tolerance, they're actually pretty popular as houseplants uh, in cool climates like where we live. So uh, if you have pothos or a calla lily or Swiss cheese plant, also called the cutleaf philodendron, these are all very popular houseplants. So you're like, oh, I've never heard of this family. No, they're they're in your backyard. They're in your house. They're at a nearby botanical garden. They're everywhere. They're all related to skunk cabbage. Yeah. And you mentioned the titanarum, mm-hmm. which some people call the corpse plant or the yeah. corpse flower. So that's the one that gets that huge flower that only comes, you know, every few years or every five or seven years. And it smells horrible. Yeah. So some members of the arum family like the titanarum, like skunk cabbage, do produce these foul odors, and they do it for a reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I want to mention, uh, and this is something we did touch on briefly before, is that members of this family often contained groove raphide crystals of calcium oxide. They also have cyanogenic compounds, alkaloids, as well as other irritating secondary metabolites. And all that basically means is that you probably don't want to eat these guys. I don't really want to get into it too much, but... No, but I'm going to jump on that. So you said raphides. Yeah. That means that the crystals of calcium oxalate present in a lot of arums, they're needle-shaped. Oh, yeah. So They're pointed on both ends. Yeah. Yeah. So if you eat this plant, it does produce an intense burning sensation if eaten raw. Uh, You can't boil it to get rid of it. Yeah, they stay in there after boiling. Yeah. Yeah, but you can dry the plant to neutralize those crystals. And did you know that calcium oxalate, that's a major constituent of human kidney stones? Oh, yeah. I knew Uh, that. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't know that. And it's also found in beer stone, a scale that forms on containers used in breweries. I didn't know that either. Yeah. So I think one thing that's interesting is that this is a inorganic mineral, right? Yeah. That's being created in organic systems. And it doesn't always form 
in needle-shaped crystals. Oh, okay. Because I did look that up, and there are instances where it occurs in a form that isn't so pointy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you wanted to talk about the roots, right? You know what? But before that, though, since we started talking about the smell, let's do that. So we mentioned that the spathe is reddish purple. Mm -hmm. Do you know why some people theorize it's reddish purple? If I were to guess, yeah. a sophomoric guess, yeah. would be because darker colors absorb more light instead of reflect the light, so they would warm up better. That is entirely logical, and I like that, but that's not what I was talking about. Oh, so okay. <laughs> think about how it emerges, as you said, coming out from under the snow even, right? It doesn't require as much chlorophyll. Right, but it's theorized that that reddish-purple color resembles carrion. Oh, okay. So animals that have died over the winter time, as the snow melts back, their corpses are going to be exposed, and that's going to attract things like dung beetles, flesh flies, bottle flies, all these things that come and feed on dead stuff, and it's going to inadvertently pick up some pollen and hopefully pollinate skunk cabbage. So the liver-colored streaks and the bad odor... It also leads some botanists to cite that this plant is an example of dung mimicry. Oh, okay. And it even has volatile chemicals. Great names here. Did you come across this? Scatol and cadaverine. No. So the chemicals that are part of that odor. I like the, the scat part of scatol. Yeah. I imagine that that's where that's coming from. So the one account I read said they mimic putrescence successfully enough to attract insects that specialize in scavenging dead and fecal matter. Yeah, so I think it's important right now that I think we've said it indirectly, but I think we should just come out and say it as clearly as we can. Skunk cabbage is called skunk cabbage for a couple of reasons. One, when it looks a little bit like cabbage, the leaves that appear later on after the flowers, when you damage those, they produce a bad smell. Yep. But also, and I know you also damaged the spathe, and that made a bad, well, I'm going to say bad smell in quotes, (laughs) um, but also the flower itself without being damaged at all, does produce a bit of an odor. Right. So there's many smelly parts of this plant, and that's why it's called skunk cabbage. Yeah. Linnaeus gave skunk cabbage its species name, Photidus. How'd you say that? Fetidus. Fetidus. But I could totally be right. Yeah. I mean, fetid is the word. You know, fetidus isn't a word. How do you say it? Uh, Photidus. Okay. Because F-O-E-T, Photidus. I don't know, uh, because isn't fetid even spelled slightly different? It's not F-O-E-T. It's F-E-T-I-D, right? It depends if you're in England or not. I know, I know. So, uh, and, and fetid really just means smelling extremely unpleasant. Yeah. But I've also heard it described as a mixture of a skunk, putrid meat, and garlic. But some of the other words, malodorous, mephitic, yeah. that just means foul-smelling or noxious, viverine, oh. ferret-like. Yeah, would, well, it's musky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've also heard mustard plaster and raw onions. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, um, I've also heard it described as you, as innocuously as fresh cabbage with a slight suggestion of mustard. <laughs> what? And actually... What I, cabbage are these people eating? I don't know. I kind of appreciate that more, though. If you've ever, like, snapped off some, like, fresh lettuce, I, don't, I didn't think it smelled that bad. Well, but you but know, the onion is also there, too. The garlic, the onion, just a little bit. There are some freaks out there that say, that I love the smell of skunk. <laughs> <laughs> Those potheads. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we are going to talk more about the animals related to skunk cabbage. But I mentioned that we're going to talk about the roots. 
Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So I did read that if you want to dig up skunk cabbage, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know why you would want to, you would have to dig about you would have to dig over a foot before the root shows even the slightest sign of giving way. Did yeah, you come across that? I did. So yeah. it has these thick vertical rhizomes, and they're at the center of this radiating mass of lots of long descending roots, and mm-hmm. I read they resemble earthworms. Yeah, I heard the large central rootstock is about the size of a potato. Yeah. Which that's big. Potatoes yeah. aren't small. <laughs> I read a couple of But potatoes of are so variable in size <laughs> that I'm like, what do you mean, potato? Yeah. <laughs> I read several accounts of people trying to dig it up and complaining about how difficult it was. <laughs> yeah. So I found this last bit pretty interesting. The older roots have a ring-like or wrinkled character. Yeah. And do you know? Did you know about this? That's what I read. That's all it said. <laughs> you weren't curious about why they have a wrinkled well, or ring-like? That's all it said. All right. So <clears throat> the reason is because these type of roots are something called contractile roots. Oh, okay. I read that somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, this is something it, cool they do every year. Yeah, and this is particular to a, a few plants. The general purpose is to pull the plant back into the ground as it grows up each year. And so by the process of contraction, the roots wrinkle up and draw the plant down into the soil. And the roots are permanently wrinkled after this contraction. Yeah, so they pull it down, I read, several millimeters a year. So it always keeps it close to the soil surface. Yeah, and that's why I was saying before that beneath the space, beneath the inflorescence, there is a peduncle, but it's short. And you're not going to see it because the plant is in the ground. The plant has been pulled into the ground. Did you tell people what a peduncle is? It's just a flowering stalk. All right, just yeah. to make sure people know. It's what an inflorescence sits on top of. Now, did you come across, speaking of the rhizomes, did you come across how long these plants can live for? That is something I didn't, uh, and I was actually going to ask you because I saw that it could they could flower in their fourth year, so I'm like, at least four years, I'm guessing, but I, I don't know how long they can live. So I read a couple accounts that claimed, and these were pretty scientific accounts they weren't just throwing around wild claims they weren't necessarily academic papers though Mm -hmm. and a couple different sources said that some roots have lived for centuries what so over a hundred years now i tried to find any papers any uh specific references to studies and i wasn't able to come across so i was going to put it out there to the audience if if you know of anyone who has actually done any kind of specific study on the age of skunk cabbage roots i would i would love to see that yeah so, that would be that's extremely long-lived yeah that's uh for an herbaceous plant yeah. I, I wonder like what's the average age that an herbaceous plant lives not including annuals uh you know something that sticks around a perennial right. you know i want to know how long they generally live that'd be really interesting to know and it's tough to find numbers like that because sometimes i'm like you find all these interesting things about a plant, but I'm like, okay, that seems interesting, but I want to know what that is compared to <laughs> the average, the things around it. You know, yeah. like I want to know how long this, I don't know. Cause how interesting is it to say this lives four years? Okay. But everything, what if everything else is living four years? Yeah. How interesting is that even to say? What know? if everything else lives for a hundred years? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it would need be context. Yeah, I know <laughs> it's, it's hard work finding, you know, digging up this information. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, since we're talking about the rhizomes, can we move into some of the animals that feed on skunk cabbage? Oh, yeah. Because I found some interesting information. First, let's talk about the animals that eat it. So uh, I know ring-necked pheasants sometimes consume the leaves, 
and I read that black bears do dig up and eat the rhizomes, mm-hmm. which led me to wonder, how is that possible? Don't the rhizomes also have calcium oxalate crystals in them? Wouldn't that hurt the bear? Uh, but, yeah. But, so I, I came across that as well. I, I heard that um, both black bears and snapping turtles occasionally eat the foliage, but only when little else is available, right. when they're coming out of hibernation. So this led me to another study, which isn't necessarily about skunk cabbage, but it was cool, so I'm going to share it. So this was in the Journal of Mammalogy from 2005, and they looked at um, the effects of spring acorn availability on black bear diet, mm-hmm. and then on the milk consumption of their cubs and cub survival. So basically they were looking at, depending on the acorns are doing, how does this affect the milk and what it does to the cubs? So they looked at, the sample was relatively small, just seven adult bears, but they did find in one year there was a bumper acorn crop uh, where the bears were, their spring diets were, uh, more than a quarter of their diets were acorns. And then there was another year with an extremely poor acorn crop where, get this, their spring diet for these bears was 99% skunk cabbage. Whoa. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I'm glad that we're talking about this now because right in the beginning when we walked up on these plants, they were all chewed to pieces. Right, they yeah. were, which was kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah. So they, they measured the fat content of the milk, and they did say it was higher when acorns were abundant, about 12%, but they didn't find any carryover effect into cub survival. Hmm. So that bears just compensate for changes in food availability by eating other stuff, greater volumes of other stuff, and then they perhaps allocate more resources to milk production if they have to. Got it. So so did we talk about who pollinates this plant? We did not, so I was going to leave that to you. Who is the first one usually to pollin- pollinate this? Did you come across that? Uh, Not positive. I know I've heard flesh flies, carrion flies, various gnats. I don't know. Ap's mellifera? Oh, a bee. Yeah. <laughs> so let me, before you go on with this, I do want to add this little great quote that I found from an old paper. From a recent article in American Forestry by R.W. Schufeld, I found that a variety of bee introduced into this country from Europe is one of its earliest visitors since they must have food early in the spring. The article further states that the honeybee if able to enter, finds the exit too narrow and slippery, and the bee perishes miserably. <laughs> I mean, it's, the ones we're looking at kind of have decent size openings, yeah. but very often it's a very small little slit. And I did find probably two or three references to the fact that sometimes when bees go in, they can't come out again. Well, let's just say they perish miserably. <laughs> <laughs> that is a better way to say it. <laughs> but they don't all. Yeah. yeah. And we'll talk about some of the stories about how bees can utilize skunk cabbage early in the season because of the heat that skunk cabbage produces. Oh, yeah. But let's save that uh, for a little while. Speaking of animals using the heat to their advantage, yeah. nearby spiders, have you heard about this, yep. will create webs in the opening of the spathe, uh, which is super smart <laughs> if you're a spider <laughs> and you're warm enough to move around and make a web. Yeah. Uh, it seems like the perfect place to put one in the early spring and late winter. Yeah, the one study I looked at said they found 11 species of spiders constructing webs in and around skunk cabbage space. And just so people understand, spiders sometimes get frozen in the wintertime and they can survive it perfectly fine. I was hiking in Allegheny a few years back and we found a spider and uh, it like thawed out and it was like perfectly fine. But then, you know, we're like, we just can't bring this spider with us everywhere we go. <laughs> we just like put him back onto the snow and he, uh, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if he could survive multiple freezing and thawing events, but 
Yeah, uh, I'm sure he's dead now. Yeah. <laughs> he or she is dead, yeah. Now, did you find out about the spider that mimics the male flower? No, go ahead. So there's a, a common spider found at the spadix base, and it mimics a pollinating male flower. So it's a theridiid spider. I don't know that group. It's an Enoplegnatha marmorata. So it's common name is the marbled cobweb spider. Okay. So I don't have much to say about it beyond that, but reading about this spider led me to something that I found incredible, unrelated to skunk cabbage. Mm-hmm. Did you know about cobweb painting? This, no. So this apparently started in the 1500s. Monks and certain <laughs> peasants did it over in Europe. I know you don't care about people, <laughs> but you got to hear this. So this was a custom where people would go out, gather spider webs, and then stretch them and condense them to create canvases upon which they would paint. Oh, <laughs> so, interesting. So this was a certain kind of painting done on this incredibly delicate canvas crafted by hand out of spider webs. Well, the cobweb paintings, there's only apparently about 100 of them left because they're so fragile. Whoa. Just to keep them, you know, over the decades and the centuries is so difficult. There's only about 100 left. So finding out about the cobweb spider led me to discover that, which was pretty cool. So I also found that other pollinators are chiefly flesh flies in their sarcophagidae and carrion or blowflies. Okay. Uh, these are the ones that are metallic, bluish, or green. Uh, they resemble houseflies, the ones feeding on dead stuff usually. Mm-hmm. In terms of animals that just feed on the plant... The uh, ruby tiger moth feeds on the foliage, and the cattail borer moth typically mines the leaves. And I also saw that slugs and snails occasionally feed on the foliage of skunk cabbage. The ones that want to kill themselves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if calcium oxalate does to them what it does to us. But yeah, I know. They're a very different type of creature. Sure. Yeah. It could be fine. Now, I know the fellow we, we often mention on these podcasts, John Eastman, his series of books, of natural history books, he mentions that a certain species of warbler, I can't remember if it's a yellow warbler or a common yellow throat, makes their nest inside the spathe of the skunk cabbage. Now, that can, will sometimes do that. If they're bigger? Well, exactly. Because <laughs> I read that and I'm like, come on. Now, I wanted to say, do they, do they pluck the spadix out and then just put their <laughs> egg in there? So several times over the years since I got that book, I've asked birders about this and i've tried to look up online if i can find a picture of a yellow warbler nest inside of a spathe i have never been able to find (laughs) any other reference to this happening now i did find the article that i think john eastman used for much of his account it was an article from the 1970s and it uses the same vocabulary that he did Mm -hmm. so i'm thinking that's where he got that story from but i'm putting it out there to the listeners if any of you know of this actually happening and you have photographic evidence, I'd like to see it. Because, as you just said, Steve, those spathes are way too small. Yeah, I mean, these ones are. Yeah. Warbler nests are tiny, but they're not that tiny. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds so such a great idea because, oh, you know, the, the bad odor of the skunk cabbage and the calcium oxalate, which probably discourages browsing, will keep things away. But I just can't see a yellow warbler using a spathe. How funny would it have been, like, as a tell? Because, like, after the birds emerge from the ground yeah. from being dormant all winter, <laughs> they lay their eggs inside skunk cabbage spathes. After, after they emerge from their underwater hibernation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so by, by the way, that is what some uh, ornithologists thought before 
my creation was invented. Right. <laughs> and I say invented in scare quotes. But they just said, yeah, the birds go underwater, of course. Yeah. So we shouldn't mock historical ideas. I, <laughs> hey, I spent way too much time on historical ideas a few <laughs> episodes ago. All right. Now, now hang on. So I'm sure uh, our legion of, legions of fans are right now uh, looking online trying to find evidence of this. Now, I will say I did find some accounts saying that some warblers will build their nests in skunk cabbage leaves mm-hmm. because the leaves are so large yeah. that sometimes, kind of like down in the crook like in the of the base of the... Right, that sometimes they will build their nest there. But Eastman, he says the spathe, that it's inside the spathe. He's not talking about the regular leaves. Right, yeah, because so. the spathe's gone by the time the leaves show up. Usually, so. yeah. Yeah. So, as long as we're talking about animals... Humans have traditionally used skunk cabbage to treat all sorts of things. Steve is making quotes. <laughs> Listen carefully for the audible scare quotes <laughs> there around the word treat, because I'm not sure if it actually worked or not. But uh, I don't know. I don't really give a f- about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steven. <laughs> so maybe we should move on to something more interesting. <laughs> All right, we've been dancing around thermogenesis and the heat that this plant produces, which I think is probably the coolest part about this plant. How'd you get that? It's the coolest part of the plant. (laughs) (laughs) Not a very good pun, but... All right, so let's talk about... What is this about, Steve? All right, so I'm not sure if you came across a different mechanism for thermogenesis than I did, but I have a general sense of how it's done through my 2011 edition of Botany, an introduction to plant biology. And before you start to bore us with that, let's just (laughs) define our terms here. So thermogenesis is just what? The creation of heat. Yeah. The genesis of thermo. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this plant produces heat. Yeah. And you will often find skunk cabbage early in the season with the snow melted around it because the plant is actually melting the snow. Yeah. And I don't know if you came across this, but... Skunk cabbage isn't the only plant to use thermogenesis, but it does do it in kind of an interesting way. So there's two... Aren't they all interesting ways? Well, (laughs) there's two types of thermogenesis in a sense. So there's two ways to do it. One, you could either only heat up right around when you want the female flowers to be pollinated. So... Let's say, for example, during the day when you know there's pollinators around, that's when you're going to heat up. And then when the sun goes down, you'll cool back down. You'll go back to a quote-unquote cold-blooded plant. Right. And then the next day you'll heat up again and then cool down yeah, and heat up. Yeah, skunk cabbage don't do that. Yeah, skunk cabbage just pushes through. <laughs> there's no cooling back down until the snow is gone and the weather has warmed up a little bit. At that point, it'll stop. But we should also mention that the thermogenesis only occurs inside the spadix. Right. And it's probably obvious that the spathe keeps some of that heat in there right yeah so the spadex heats up the air within the spathe yeah and uh the temperature within the flower spathe is often 60 degrees fahrenheit higher than ambient air you got 60 in below freezing temperatures they can be 20 degrees celsius at least 20 degrees celsius warmer than their environment yeah so i got at ambient temperatures between 37 and 75 degrees fahrenheit Spadex temperatures ranged between 61 and 79 degrees. Mm-hmm. And the warmest ones were those that were in the receptive female or early pollen-bearing stages. Yeah, so as you it's, just it's not as interested in heating up after the female stage. Yeah, but yeah. did you find that those rates increased with declining ambient temps? That's what you just said, right? Mm-hmm. So as temperatures drop, 
it starts to get warmer. Yeah. yeah. So skunk cabbage and other plants that produce heat do it more effectively than people do. And without getting too deeply into the chemistry of it, um, often plants are interested in producing molecules called ATP during respiration. ATP is adenosine triphosphate. And this is the only reason I'm bringing this up is because this is actually incredibly important. Yeah. This is what biologists will call the energy currency of cells for most organisms. And it's used in all different types of metabolic processes. So let's just stick with plants since that's the topic today. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm willing to make this a little bit wrong in order to make it easier to understand. Who knows? Maybe I'll make it harder to understand. <laughs> but ATP is a little like a rechargeable battery inside of a cell. So plants aren't a closed system. Energy comes into that system through sunlight, through uh, radiation. And that energy charges or provides the energy for the production of ATP. And the energy in ATP is used to carry out the functions of the cell. So I'm going to get a little more technical here so you guys can see a little bit under the hood. Uh, so it seems less magical. Uh, under the hood. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't actually realize that I was making that pun. So... When ATP breaks a bond, it releases energy. So ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is converted when it breaks a bond into adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, and an inorganic phosphate. When more energy from the sun reaches another adenosine diphosphate and an inorganic phosphate, it's converted into an ATP again, and it can be used as a little battery again. So every time the ATP is formed, it's like a battery being charged, and every time a bond is broken in the ATP and the energy is released, it's like the battery being used and running out of juice. Now, is that okay, do you think? Is that, was that, was that oh, understandable? Like, could I follow that? Yeah. I followed that. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so I don't want to spout a bunch of chemistry jargon at you guys, so just know that the production of ATP is energy efficient, and relatively little of that energy is lost as heat. So we know no energy is ever lost in the system, but we just mean radiated out as heat. And this would all be considered cell respiration, right? Yes. So I know you probably have more to say, but mm -hmm. just to give people a little mental break before Steve continues. So when you're explaining this to your friends, you can say skunk cabbage produces heat through cell respiration. Yes. Okay. And thermogenesis is also called thermogenic respiration. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like I just said, ATP is efficient and it loses very little energy as heat. But if the plant is strictly interested in producing heat, it can skip synthesizing ATP and produce a whole bunch of heat instead. So a plant is only going to want to do this if it has the excess energy stores that evolved for that purpose. And I know plants don't want stuff and evolution doesn't do things on purpose but you get my gist right yes, we <laughs> yeah. get your gist got it so i skipped all the chemical equations and all that but just so you know it's just skipping the production of atp and that produces heat when you're not making atp you're quote-unquote wasting a lot of heat yeah. but it's just adv advantageous because now it's suddenly warm enough for the metabolism of skunk cabbage to do its job all right, Steve, you look pretty cold, so why don't we start walking? Yeah, I got one of my hands in my armpit warming it up. <laughs> so all of this heat production that skunk cabbage is doing, you would think it was doing this to try to attract pollinators, right? Yeah, like to increase its metabolism so it can grow as well as attract pollinators because it 
heat helps volatilize smells. Right. Yeah, chemicals into the air, yeah. And we mentioned bees before. In John Eastman's book, The Book of Swamp and Bog, he talks about how bees don't fly very well under 65 degrees. Oh, okay. And that some of the folks that raise bees, they actually refer to skunk cabbage as heat stops. Oh, okay. Because the bee can fly from spathe to spathe, warm itself up, and then have enough energy to move on to the next one. Got a little, little gas station. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I did find a study. Now, it was from 1999. But it was in the Journal of Experimental Biology, and Steve just almost fell off the bridge. <laughs> almost right into that pond. <laughs> Good save. Kettle pond, yeah. So this one was, this was a study that was focused on studying temperature changes within a skunk cabbage spate. And I didn't write down in my notes here how many individual plants they looked at, but they did do a survey of all the insects that were present. Mm-hmm. So in the discussion, it said only 11 invertebrates, including only one flying insect, oh, here we go, were found in 195 inflorescences, suggesting that heat production and temperature regulation are not closely associated with cross-pollination. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) So that leaves me thinking, why else is it doing it? (laughs) Right. Right. So now that is just one study, Mm -hmm. but definitely something to think about, because if... These skunk cabbage plants were churning out all this heat, but they were finding virtually no insects. What's the deal? Yeah. Do you know? Do you have an answer? I don't. I don't have an answer. (laughs) So, again, this may just have been an anomaly in this one study, because in all the other studies, I really didn't find references to that, but I don't know if they were looking for that either. Right. So it's just something to think about, something to consider. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've outsourced a lot of things to our audience this episode. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. It does seem that way. And then the, the last thing I'll share is I thought it was very cool. One study actually looked at temperature changes, and they timed it. And they found that when ambient temperatures started to change, that the temperature of the spadex started to change first in the same direction as ambient air temperatures. But then at 38.3 minutes, it reversed. Huh. And it took 87.6 minutes for the skunk cabbage to get to the temperature that it wanted to. Interesting. (laughs) So again, this was just one study. I didn't find references in other studies to those times, but I thought it was great that they said at 38.3 minutes, (laughs) then it reversed temperature. Uh (laughs) Like you could set your your watch to it. (laughs) All right. So do you have anything else? No, I think we're good. I think we covered a lot of stuff and uh, it's a good place to wrap up. Now, before we get into our, our usual wrap up, I do have a piece of listener mail that I'd like to share. Did you happen to look at the comment that was left on our website about the local ecotypes episode? Yeah, I believe so. All right, so Monica wrote to us, and she said this was following our local ecotypes episode, the last official episode we did, about uh, a program that New York State Parks is doing to raise local ecotypes of native plants to help restoration projects in state parks. So Monica said, excuse me for being naive or crass, but what happens if instead of intently restoring an area, we let nature do the work? I mean, I understand that we need to protect that area from human disturbances, but after that, can't we just wait until the ecosystem restores itself? Why do we need to actively influence the course of the evolution of the ecosystem? What am I missing here? Help! I did see that. You had a bit of a back and forth. We did. And, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect uh, because, you know, we take uh, kind of a skeptical, very research based approach and 
people don't always approach it from that standpoint. Sure, but but I also think there's some really good like philosophical questions. What sure. does it mean to be untouched by human hands if we're affecting climate, if we're polluting areas, if we're like what does it mean? Do we have to be physically disturbing something or can we just be chemically disturbing it or you know there's a lot of ways. There isn't. You're dealing with ecology, so it's hugely complicated. There's lots of gray areas. And I'll encourage the audience, if you want to see my whole response, to go visit our website and look on our page for the local ecotypes in the comment section. But I really just started out by saying, you know, it's a great question and it depends on your goal. You know, is your goal just to have a disturbed site return to a natural look? Well, nine times out of ten, you can just step back and allow things to move back in. Something's going to move in. And one thing I do want to say is that you can't look out at an area and say... I think this is pretty healthy. Right. There, there's really some very, very difficult ways, a lot of hard work that goes into determining if a site is being productive, you know, measuring microbial activity, looking at species richness, looking right. at biomass, is looking it? at disturbance events, because you have to make sure that every now and then there's some disturbance. You know, there's a lot of things that go into knowing if a place is actually healthy. Sometimes something looks good, right. but you don't you don't know if it's actually good, you know? Exactly. So I went on to explain that, you know, look, unless you're in a very remote, very wild, and very big place, that human disturbance is a facet of most systems. And that if we're looking at biodiversity and, as you said, overall health and where the diversity and the production would be at if there weren't major human disturbances, are we trying to move things back more in that direction? And I actually used an example from the site we're at right now at Beaver Meadow because during my time here, you know, every day I'd walk these trails and I'd see tons of multiflora rose and tartarian honeysuckle, two invasives that were planted here by Audubon volunteers in the 50s because we didn't know about invasive plants back then. Mm -hmm. They thought, hey, these grow quick. You don't have to do a lot of work. They it produce a habitat. lot of seeds. Yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were trying to create habitat. But they take over. They reduce diversity. And Boy Scout troops would come out here and they would say, hey, we want to do community service. And staff here would sometimes say, well, why don't you remove some, some of the Tartarian honeysuckle and the multiflora rose? Well, this site, even though it's 400 acres, that's relatively small, surrounded by farms, mm -hmm. uh, unmanaged woods. So when they removed the honeysuckle or the rose, well, those seeds were still in the seed bank. They would move in from adjacent properties. So within a decade, we're right back to where we started. Yeah. So without active human intervention and a plan for how are we going to keep those invasives out, what are we going to plant there instead what natives are we going to encourage without human intervention you'd just be right back where you were to a less diverse system we talked about it in our multi-floor rose episode yeah. we said sometimes you can have negative impacts on an ecosystem by just ripping out all the multi-floor rose right you, you should there should be more of a transitional plan because there are species that use multi-floor rows. Yeah. Um, I think mockingbirds are one that we brought up in that yeah. episode that we don't want to disadvantage species just because we're trying to help them in the long run. Right. Invasive yeah. species aren't all bad. Yeah. They are, they are doing some good stuff. And, and I also did say that sometimes you don't need human intervention. And sometimes human intervention leads to worse consequences you're trying to right. help. So it's never very clear cut. But for the episode that we were talking about, local ecotypes, that's definitely a consideration 
if you're focused on restoring natives and you're trying to restore ecosystems to some kind of uh, previous evolutionary state. Yeah, and, and that's I'm really glad you brought that up because you and I were talking about we would love to do an episode about novel ecosystems. Yeah. Because in the paper that you were talking about in that episode right near the end that kind of questioned the use of local ecotypes, yeah. very specifically in the wording of what you're reading, you were talking about novel ecosystems. Right. And those are not something that native plants have evolved with. Yeah, Steve talked about after the episode how he wished we'd had a chance to talk about novel ecosystems more. Right. But because I think I, I'm not I'm not totally sure at all the sites that Bridget and Whitney work at, but I'm not sure if they're working in novel ecosystems or if they're just working in generally invaded or disturbed sites. Right, yeah. and that's one thing that I regret that I didn't mention when I covered that paper is some sites as well as the surrounding areas, are so disturbed and so changed that if you just went and planted the historical native populations, they're not going to make it anyway. Yeah. Because you have to consider what's going on at the adjacent sites. What are the biological flows that are going to be coming into this, yeah, this like, site? Are you planting on top of a steel plant? Right. Or, <laughs> just, you know. Yeah, who knows? Now, I had no idea what to expect because we won't get into it, but there's sometimes Steve and I have replied to comments in what we thought was a very rational, sensible way. And the replies aren't so, so much. <laughs> but Monica did get back to me. It was great. She said, thanks for applying and for clearing this up for me, Bill. This example you mentioned helps me understand the need for human intervention. I brought up the question because I was thinking about a case in my former hometown where a significantly large riverbank area was used as a landfill site to dispose of demolition materials when a highway was being constructed. Years later, without any human direct intervention, this site was transformed into a full-blown ecosystem. Specimens were brought by the river current and established there, making it their new home. Diversity increased enormously. We could see the ecological succession happening rapidly, much faster than what the books tell us. It was totally unexpected and surprising. But I do understand that not all the cases are the same and that this strategy, or maybe I should say lack of strategy, does not work all the time. Thanks for taking your time to read my comment and to reply and for also for making an awesome podcast. So... In that situation, I don't know if there was necessarily a goal mm -hmm. of what they wanted restored at that site. But as I said, things will grow. Things will come back. The river was bringing in specimens. It's like Colts the foot wind selling was bringing dime. In. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't <laughs> right. know what grew there. But yeah. um, I appreciate her responding and thinking about what I said mm -hmm. and taking it seriously. And thank you, Monica, for taking the time to write and to reply. All right. So... We hope you enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Elizabeth and Guy, our newest patrons. Yeah. Now, I do have to jump in here because mm -hmm. I don't think we've talked about this officially. You saw the message from one of the patrons asking if we would come and do a, a hike and a recording if they were willing to donate enough. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, I did, I did see that. <laughs> so... We didn't really talk about how to respond to that. No, we haven't. But I, we can do it on mic as long as you're okay <laughs> with it. I would say, hey, if someone's willing to, to pay for us travel expenses to come out and do a hike somewhere, I'm all for it. You don't even need to be a patron. Just pay for us to go <laughs> yeah, somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll gladly do that. So I did get back to that person, and I did say, well, we'd have to consider travel expenses and timing, yeah. but, you know, hey, we're yeah. open to it. We're open yeah. to talking about it. Like, I know our patrons should be given advantages that other people don't have. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you're willing to 
send us somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we do send patrons stickers, right? Yeah. In fact, I'm sending them out today or tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of patrons, we are thankful for every single patron. But at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, Rob, we named the dog Indy, Bethany, and especially Scott, Ken, Diane, Morgan, Alyssa, and Misery Mountain Farms. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And we also want to thank our new anonymous five-star reviewers. So no more written reviews since the last episode, but we did have a few more five-star anonymous ones. So that's nice. So uh, keep the reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And I also want to add that last episode, I mentioned that we were included in a video by Backpacker Diaries titled Top Outdoor Podcast for 2017. Well, this episode, we found out that we're featured in an article on Audubon.org titled 10 of the Best Podcast About Birds by Nicholas Lund. Yeah, that was great to find that out. It was such a nice surprise. But just don't tell them that we're actually not a podcast just about birds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we've covered birds five or so times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so besides Bird Note, I'm not really familiar with a lot of the other podcasts on the list. But I'm definitely going to check a few of them out now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to read a, a small part of the review. <laughs> Bill and Steve... And then in parentheses, they can't disclose last names with all the rabid fans, (laughs) are two Western New Yorkers with a knack for narrating nature documentaries. Their podcasts revolve around them dropping encyclopedic knowledge on a species as they look for it in the wild. They don't always find the creature they're after. (laughs) Birders know the feeling, but everyone has a good time searching with them. And then his pick was episode 25, the Eastern Screech Owl episode. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) And if you have any comments or questions, you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook. You can follow us also on Twitter, at FieldGuidesPod. Check out our Instagram feed at FieldGuidesPodcast. And you can always visit us at our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides but if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now there are other ways you can help out you can share our podcast with friends or rate us and leave a review on itunes or stitcher it really helps us get the word out to more people so thanks for listening and we'll see you next month see you next month folks